Our sermon this morning is going to be taken from 1 Kings chapter 11, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13. You will remember that last week we read about the the golden age of Israel, the time when the kingdom reached its pinnacle in terms of its extent, its borders, its wealth, and the glory of its capital, Jerusalem, how many wondrous things there were how much wealth there was, how the, uh, the kings and the queens of the world looked at Jerusalem with envy, how there were these massive architectural projects, especially for such a small nation, the, uh, the various palaces, the place where Solomon kept his golden shields, the forest of Lebanon, as it was called, for all of the pillars and hewn of cedar that were there, and the wonder simply of the Lord's blessing to the people. But we remember even as it reached its, its, its azimuth, it was coming to a point where sin would bring it down, particularly the sin of one man, and that one man, Solomon, the head of God's covenant people, the king, the son of David himself. We saw how he had already begun to go off the, the right path in his accumulation, his multiplication of horses and gold, and then wives, and then we're going to see the effect of having so many wives, and hopefully we will learn things from it ourselves. I'm not going to make the primary application be uh, to the people of of Israel uh, thousands of years ago, but rather I want this to be something that we take to heart, particularly those of you who are younger, who are not yet married. I'm going to be applying this to you, and hopefully you will take the lesson to heart about how important it is to not be unequally yoked. And we'll talk about what that really means. But before we do, let's turn to the Lord our God. Let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. God, our Father, I do pray that you would be with us here today. I know, Lord, that when preaching is going on, there's spiritual warfare present. The world, the flesh, and the devil, as the seed is falling, they don't want it to do any good. They don't want it to germinate. They don't want it to bring forth a harvest. So they'll do everything that they can They'll distract us, Lord. They'll bring to mind those, those silly things that wouldn't occupy our, our attention for a moment on another day. Uh, suddenly, people walking in and out become very important, Lord. They'll uh, try to get me off track uh, and go down rabbit holes and take too much time on, on things that are not significant enough to be remembered. But I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help me to remain fixed upon the main message of this area of scripture, Lord, and that I would say nothing that would go against your word for your people. And I pray that your people would have open ears, that the word would go in and then it would go down to their hearts and produce a harvest. Help us now, Lord, to listen to your word and to grow in grace. Remind us, this is your word to us here and now, and not merely to a people long ago. It's for us. Help us, therefore, to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. 1 Kings 11, I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read through 13. Remind you, this is the word of the Lord. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. 
And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It was a long time ago now. It was 1990s, last century. I was working in... Uh, the computer department of a legal publishing company in Washington, D.C. And one of the the joys, well, actually it was one of the only joys of working there was the fact that we had uh, a a Bible study made up of employees in the company that met on Wednesday. And the people in this Bible study were from all different racial backgrounds and demographics and church backgrounds as well. Uh, as a reformed believer, I was in a definite minority. The majority were, were Pentecostal, very much so. But it was, uh, it was a needful thing. We needed uh, that fellowship. It was a very uh, dark environment. The uh, company itself was headed up um, by um, uh, mostly secular liberals. And the vice president uh, in charge of hiring and human resources was a homosexual. And he was trying to create a homosexual fiefdom. And there was definitely a a great deal of spiritual conflict. So it was wonderful to meet with other believers and to pray and to study the word. And since I'd started going to seminary classes, I'd become the de facto teacher. I would put together the lessons on Wednesday. We had some excellent members there and people who encouraged me as I was moving uh, gradually towards uh, moving in the direction of the pastorate. Well, one day, one of the members of that uh, particular Bible fellowship uh, by the name of Karen, who was a young, uh, single black woman, and she was, she was all intensity. She, you know, when she was coming to your cubicle, she would kind of, you know, it was kind of stomp, 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 stomp. She came over and she, and she said, Andy, we are going to go talk some sense into S. S was obviously not her full name. I don't want to give her a full name, but... S was another single uh, uh, black young woman in the, in the Bible study. And I said, oh, okay, what are we going to talk to S about? And she said, oh, you will find out. And so we, uh, we went over to her desk and uh, she kind of loomed over her and she said, tell Andy what you're, gonna plan to, uh, what you're planning to do next month. And I looked at her and she looked at Karen and then she looked at me and she said, uh, I'm getting married. Now, knowing Karen, uh, I immediately figured out exactly what the problem was, but still I asked, who are you getting married to? And she kind of hung her head and said, uh, a state trooper 
from a family my mother is friends with. And the next question I asked, of course, was, okay, is he a, uh, is he a Christian? And her eyes immediately went downwards, and she looked at the, uh, the desk and didn't say anything. And so I knew immediately that the answer was no. So I tried following up. I said, was there nobody in your church you could marry? And she got visibly angry at that point in time. And she said, all the men in my church are either married or gay. That was her, her perspective. And while that may seem unrealistic, that really was the case in a lot of the female-led churches in the D.C. area. It really was. So I said, well, you know, as the, the Bible says this, and I, I opened up 2 Corinthians 6.14, and I read. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. The word of God clearly says, do not marry an unbeliever, us, please. And she said, she, she looked up with kind of despair at that point, and she said, I know what it says. I just haven't met any strong Christian black men, and I am tired of waiting. Now, that was kind of a, to me, it was a silly statement. She was about 19 or 20 years old, very attractive. <laughs> she was tired of waiting, but she wanted to get married. And I said to her, but you know... And you fellowship with strong Christian single men who work at this company. And she kind of got the look on her face and she said, but they're all white. My family would never, ever approve of that. And so I, I, I played my last card. I said, well, what about Roger? He's single and he's black and he's a strong Christian. And she made a snorting noise and she said, Andy, he's too old. He was already in his you know, mid to late 30s. And from her perspective, that was ridiculously old. She told us at that point, she said, he said he would start going to church with me after we get married. And uh, she absolutely refused to be talked out of it. And eventually she did indeed take the marriage that her family approved of and wanted. And we saw her after that less and less in the fellowship at work. Karen found out her new husband had indeed gone to church with her a couple of times before they got married, but once they were married, he stopped going and that he said that he was either too tired or that he had to work. He just could not make it to church. And then one day, sadly, S came into work wearing sunglasses, and that was because she had a large black eye, unfortunately, that her husband had given her. She figured out that his working uh, late on particular nights was not because he was working late on particular nights, but because he was seeing old girlfriends. Uh, he was cheating on her. She had confronted him with it, had been very upset, had begun shouting at him, and he had ended the argument by simply hitting her in the face. Uh, and her family then got involved. They said she should be happy that she had a working husband. He was still paying the bills. and. Hey, having women on the side was just what men did. She should get used to it and shut up. 
um, she should be happy about her situation. But I watched as in a, in a matter of a few months, this woman went from being a, a happy, pretty young Christian woman to a desperately unhappy woman who obviously felt absolutely trapped and, and, and frankly hopeless. What had happened? Well, this woman knew what God's word said. She knew it before I read it to her. She understood what being unequally yoked means. Incidentally, unequally yoked is an agricultural image. It's the idea of taking two entirely dissimilar animals. And you remember you needed two oxen or two mules to pull a plow and putting them both in the yoke. They walk at different paces. They have different interests. They turn their heads in different directions. Getting them to plow a straight line and be productive is impossible. No farmer in his right mind would unequally yoke animals. He would not put a mule in the same yoke as an ox because they are very, very different and nothing good will come of it. But she had refused to heed what God had said about marrying unbelievers. And she had refused to believe what would happen if it did. And as a result, she had paid a terrible price in her own life. I wish I could say that she was the only Christian I've met who has done exactly that. But I can't tell you how many times I've heard again and again that, 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 that dream phrase, I'll marry them and make them a Christian. And I have to tell you, to this day, I have never seen that plan actually work. It is not a plan God blesses. You can search the scriptures. You will not find that particular missionary dating and marriage plan approved of, guaranteed in the scriptures anywhere. Quite the opposite. Now, it is the case often that when you have two unbelievers and one of them comes to faith, eventually their example leads the other person to faith as well. That happens. But as I said, I have not seen the, I'm going to marry, I'm just gonna go ahead and marry the unbeliever and expect them to become a Christian work out. There was a reason that God gave a warning again and again against that in his word. Now God, of course, had given the Israelites the same kind of solemn warning that Paul had given much later the people of Corinth. He gave them a warning in Deuteronomy 7. Moses had spoken it to them before they entered into the promised land. And that was what was quoted by the author of 1 Kings 11. Deuteronomy 7, you may want to turn there in your Bibles. Starting with verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. And please understand, this was not some sort of national or racial prejudice. There were actually nations around them that they were related to. We remember that the Moabites were descended from Moab. Moab was not the mother of all bombs. Moab was the actual son of Lot. And Lot, of course, was the cousin, or the nephew, rather, of Abraham. 
Then there were the Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Esau was the son of Isaac, the brother of Jacob. Why were they forbidden to marry people who were, they were distantly related to? Well, the answer was they weren't to marry them because, verse 4, for they will turn, this is Deuteronomy 7, verse 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. I'm telling you, Israel, if you don't heed my voice, you will end up marrying these people. They're attractive. They have funny personalities. They have interesting cultures. And in some cases, they dress a lot more provocatively than the women of your own culture. You'll want to marry them. But if you do, your hearts will be turned away from me. And you will adopt their customs, their rituals, their morals, their ethics. And in no time at all, you will be like them and as spiritually dead as they are, following demons whom they call gods. Now Solomon, the wisest king on earth, knew that command very well, along with the other commands contained in God's law. You remember that one of the requirements for a king was that he had to make his own copy of the book of the law, specifically Deuteronomy. And so he would have known, he would have had to have copied out Deuteronomy 7. But he had ignored those commands. He had sinned in knowledge. First, he had ignored the commands of Deuteronomy 17 not to multiply horses and gold or to go back to Egypt. And then he had ignored the command in the same chapter not to multiply wives. He had added many Hebrew wives to himself as well. But worst of all, he had ignored the command not to marry with foreign unbelievers with the, with the express warning that they would turn his heart to other gods. Now, what had happened? We need to think about that. Because, of course, this is, not, this is not somebody who had a nominal interest in Yahweh and his religion. This is not somebody who was kind of, well, he's kind of a sketchy believer, you know, I'm not sure about. This was the man who, in 1 Kings 3.3, we read this, and Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. That was, what, 11 minus 3, what is that? That's eight chapters ago. We were reading that this man loved the Lord. But the verse, 1 Kings 3.3, doesn't end there. It ends by saying, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now, that little clause may not seem important, but it is actually dreadfully important, believe it or not. Because we see that even before he built the temple, we see that there was a tendency towards a downgrade in his theology. In other words, here's God's standard and here's where Solomon had been. And his tendency was to go further and further away, further and further down the slope from God's commandments towards his sinful will to move away from that. As long as one loves God, he probably would have said, you don't have to dot every I. You don't have to cross every T when it comes to worship. So what we see was early on, Solomon actually adopted what some people have called an attitude of latitude. He had given himself permission to not be, you know, careful when it comes to keeping God's commandments. And as it will, that got worse as time went on. I'm sure 
perhaps Solomon said to himself while he was pacing about his, in, in his chamber, I know that this woman is a Hittite. I know that I'm not supposed to marry her according to God's word, but surely God sees how important the alliance this will forge is to his own people and their interests. I'm sure he'll allow me to get away with it. And then a little later on, surely God, who loves me, wouldn't want me to be unhappy. And I'd be very unhappy if I didn't get to add that beautiful Edomite girl to my harem. And so therefore I will. And so again and again and again, he made excuses in his own head for his behavior. Have you ever done that? Made excuses and tried to justify it, even though you know that God's word specifically says, don't do this. Well, I, yeah, well, but this is a special circumstance. This is me, okay? I, yeah, I would disapprove of it if anybody else on earth was doing it, but it's me. Come on, the most important person. You know, you've got you to cut me a little slack. My happiness is very important to God. And I'm sure this will make me happy. Even though, usually when we say that to ourselves, it doesn't. Like many Christians today, while Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple indicated he started out thinking that there was only one God and only one way of salvation, the more contact that Solomon had with foreign religions... And the more he, he, he was tempted to, therefore, adopt this attitude of, of pluralism. You know, my Edomite wife is, is so nice, as is my Hittite wife. Uh, and, and then there's the Moabitess. Oh, she's just fantastic. And, and I'm sure that, you know, they're, they're beloved of God. Maybe it's that there are many paths to God. Maybe it's whether, it doesn't really matter whether we call him Yahweh or Baal. Now, you notice here that, that Solomon never entirely dispenses with the worship of Jehovah. He does not entirely, you know, he doesn't tear down the temple and replace it with the temple of Baal. He's not like Jezebel. Jezebel was absolutely devoted, uh, devoted rather, to Baal, the, the god of the Sidonians. He unfortunately, has decided that he can split his heart and his devotion and to say, well, I, I, think, I think God's loving enough that he'll approve of all of these things. Now, I, I have seen that happen so many times in the life of Christians. I, I watched in seminary as aging professors, as they got older, began to actually undo all the good work they had done when they were younger. One professor in particular spent all of his time, and I'm, I'm not joking, class after class railing against his denomination, which happened to be the OPC, and criticizing them for how boring their worship was, for instance, and how unnecessarily exact they were. And he was doing that. The setting in which he was doing that was a seminary founded by J. Gresham Machen, Westminster Theological Seminary. This was the same man who had started the OPC. And this was a man who was raised by the men who had been with Machen. And now here he was, not only tarnishing his own former work, but the work of those men who had, had poured themselves out into him. And predictably, he and many other professors like him ended up pushing impressionable young students towards liberalism. My wife and I were shocked while this was going on. 
Because we've been told, oh no, this is, this is the seminary of Machen. We, we'll stand fast. And yet we watched as old men began to actually promote the very things that they had preached against when they were younger. The old saying is, there's no fool like an old fool. I've seen that many a time. And then, like many old men, Solomon allowed his appetites and his emotions to rule him. After a while, the doctrines that he knew were true and had been given by God, they weren't as important to him. Now, historians will be very careful to tell you. They'll, they'll immediately, they'll rush in and they'll say, well, you've got to understand, most of these, these marriages that are spoken of here, particularly the 700 who actually got a title, they were, they were full-fledged wives. They weren't just, you know, essentially, you know, harem prostitutes, the concubines, who were, who were essentially just pulled in for uh, you know, often just one night's gratification and then stuck there for the rest of their lives. What a miserable existence, incidentally. Can you imagine that, being pulled in? I, I mean, that, we, we can think about his sin and the way that it affected the, the nation further and the way that, obviously, it, it led to the dividing. But think about this. This man was so selfish. He was willing to see a pretty young woman who could have grown up, gotten married, had a family, had a productive life, been a wife and a mother, and followed Yahweh though all of her life, and he would say to her, no, I want that one. One night, and then she's forgotten, but she can't leave the harem. She can't marry anyone else. She lives a sterile existence for the rest of her life because of one man's sexual sin. What a horrible thing to do to women. But yet, that was what he was doing and justifying it in his mind. Well, she's taken care of. Oh, I have to tell you, the thing that most of these women would have wanted so desperately was a child. And many of them would never, ever have that. An awful thing to do. But yet, there were so many of these women that he loved. They, uh, as I said, the historians will tell you this was for trade and diplomatic reasons. No, no, it wasn't. The author of Scripture tells us Shlomo, that is Solomon in, in the Hebrew, he echebed, that is, he, he dearly loved many foreign women. He clung to them. It's a mis mixture of love and lust and allowing them to, to get a hold not only on his heart, but on his counsel and getting him to do unwise things. And you can imagine, can't you, some of the conversations that took place between Solomon and his wife? He would see one of his favorites, and she was downcast. Honey, why, why are you sad? Don't I spend quality time with you at least once every three years? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, man, I, I, I'd give you more, but I spend hours and hours each day opening pickle jars. It's impossible. <laughs> what more can I do? Shlomo, honey... You just don't understand. I miss the worship of my homeland. You guys just don't worship. Oh, that you could see the frenzied dancing of the priests as they cut themselves while, while singing, what a beautiful ball. And the sound of the gongs and the trumpets and the cymbals as they drown out the sound of the screaming infants who are being sacrificed. It's beautiful. I miss it so much. And then, of course, there's the shrine prostitutes. And then, well, you know what happens after that. Oh, it's slow. Oh, no, don't, don't cry. Don't cry. We'll, we'll, we'll build a, a shrine to Molech. We'll put it on the same mountain 
that the temple of God is on. It'll be just like home, honey. Don't cry anymore. And then, believe it or not, this same man who had been beloved of God is allowing his wives to sacrifice their own infant children to Molech in Jerusalem. These are gods who were worshipped with, with all sorts of abominations, human sacrifices, fornication, the, the worshippers literally having an orgy before the god. And this was going on in Jerusalem. And it's not a surprise, therefore, that God became angry with Solomon. Here we have the leader of the covenant people, the man who should be doing the best job of following God. And here he is leading them in idolatry. He's leading them in the worship of false gods because he allowed his heart to be captivated by these foreign women and their gods. The Lord is very patient, but he will not let sin go unpunished forever. And he declares that because of this great sin, he says to Solomon, I am going to tear the kingdom in two. But note, he says this, because I loved your father so much, because he was a man after my own heart, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Now, one of the saddest things for me is what Solomon says next. Nothing. You remember that when David was confronted by Nathan the prophet regarding his awful, awful sin of adultery and murder with Bathsheba, what he had said when he was confronted with that, he said, I have sinned. And he repented and moved in the opposite direction. We have this beautiful recounting of, of his heart's cry to the Lord after that in Psalm 51. If you've never read Psalm 51, go. And it, it's a model of how to repent before the Lord. But here, we don't even read what Solomon said. Did Solomon ever repent? That's not entirely clear. It really isn't. I'll offer some evidence that he might have in, in uh, a later sermon on this chapter, but in Ecclesiastes, and, and this, I hope, it was what happened. In Ecclesiastes, after he lamented his years of vanity, he concluded in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I, I pray that he was writing that at the end of his life after this, these terrible events had taken place. And he was able to look back and say, oh man, everything that I did for those false gods was vain. Here's the matter. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Serve God with fear and love and reverence. I, I'd like to think that that was written near the end of his life than the beginning. But we have a solemn warning here for all of us. Solomon started well, and then he lost his way. He ceased to love the Lord with all of his heart and his soul and his strength. He began to depend upon himself. He began to love pleasure, and in particular, he began to love sex. And how many leaders in the church, I've seen this happen so many times, young men who started out well, they had bright futures. Everybody said, oh, he's going to go far, and then... They find themselves in the midst of a presbytery answering charges about an affair that they've had. I remember, and I'm so grateful for the practical theology class that I had. It was a two-day, two or three-day event with a man by the name of Eric Alexander. He was Sinclair Ferguson's pastor, if you know who Sinclair Ferguson is. 
And he actually warned us. He said, young men in the ministry, there are two great things you must avoid because they will come for your heart. They are other men's money and other men's wives. And he was so true. It was, it was, it was a good lesson, and I took it to heart. But this man, Solomon, started well. And then near the end, it all went south, to use that particular expression. Solomon's ship went down when the voyage was nearly over, is what Alexander McLaren said about it. So, what does this warn us? It warns us never to forget our own tendency to sinfulness. The seeds of corruption that remain even in, an unrege- in, in a regenerate heart. And our need to rely on God. Now, I, I want to make a few applications very, very quickly. The first is this. I have irritated the living daylights out of people in my life as a Christian on many a different occasion. One of the ones that has irritated people the most, though, not just as a, as a Christian, but as a parent, and in particular as a pastor, is because I've tried to be as precise as possible when it comes to the commandments of God in following them. And people get angry and they ask, why, why must we have a command for everything we do in church? Can't we have some traditions? Just a few if they're old enough? I've also ticked off people along those lines by, by refusing to break what has been called the Billy Graham rule. The Billy Graham rule, as you know, is uh, Billy Graham set a rule. I will not be alone with a woman, you know, uh, within the marriageable age by myself. And he never broke that rule. I've gotten in trouble for that. I remember one time I was looking for a ride to Womack. We had a member of the congregation who had just been involved in a terrible accident. I needed to see him. I could not find anybody uh, with a DOD, with a, with a CAC card. My, my sons weren't yet old enough to have one. Um, and, uh, and so I couldn't get on post. And so one of the ladies in the congregation, a wife, military dependent, called me. She said, I can get you on post. I'll, I'll come pick you up. And I said, uh, no, I, I can't go on, on to post by myself with you. She got very angry, but that was nothing compared to how angry her husband was when he called me. Who do you think you are? What do you think? You're all that in a bag of chips. My wife is going to jump on top of you as soon as you get in the car with her. Are you crazy? How dare you? I was like, sir, <laughs> oh, sir. I have kept out of trouble by not breaking this one rule in this one area. It's not because I thought, you know, perish the thought, I don't think in a million years that your your wife would do that, but I want to be above the appearance of evil. And I don't want to create a situation where that possibly could happen. Now, those things, staying close to the word of God when it comes to worship, staying close to the word of God when it comes to the way we, we deal with women, isn't something that I came up with myself. Uh, Richard Rogers, the Puritan pastor of Wethersfield, Essex, uh, this is at the turn of the 16th century, he was associated with the Puritan party. And one day he was riding out when the local lord of the manor, who was associated with the Episcopalian party, uh, came, came riding out. And he began twitting him about his precision ways. Why must you always have to have some sort of biblical warrant for everything you do and so on? And Rogers just turned to him and he said, oh, sir, I serve a precise God. That was his answer. J.A. Packer commenting on this says, if there had been such a thing as a Puritan quest, this would have been its proper motto, a precise God, 
a God that is who made precise disclosure of his mind and his will in scripture and who expects from his servants a corresponding preciseness of belief and behavior. It was this view of God that created and controlled the historic Puritan outlook. The Bible itself led them to it. And we who share the Puritan estimate of holy scripture cannot excuse ourselves if we fail to show a diligence and conscientiousness equal to theirs in ordering our going according to God's written word. So that's one application. You, be precise in your following of God. As precise as you can. You'll never get it perfect. No one can. Not this side of glory. But try. Do not cut yourself slack and say, good enough. Because your good enough will gradually move down, down, down. Until anybody looking at it would say, that's not good enough. It's nowhere near. Second, beware of what little sins you allow yourself, what they are teaching to the generation that's coming up behind you. Here's a quote from Matthew Henry. Take it to heart. David had multiplied wives too much, and perhaps that made Solomon presume it lawful. Note, if those that are in reputation for religion and anything set a bad example, they know not what a deal of mischief they may do by it, particularly to their own children. One bad act of a good man may be of more pernicious consequence to others than 20 of a wicked man. Probably Solomon, when he began to multiply wives, intended not to exceed his father's number, but the way of sin is downhill. Those who have got into it cannot easily stop themselves. And you will find in matters, particularly in sexual ethics, the first sin is the hardest. After that, it gets progressively easier until your conscience is so seared you don't even notice it. Beware of that. Don't allow also, third application, your desires to trump the wisdom of the Lord. Don't go against what you know the word says or what people who know what the word says would tell you. I remember getting a phone call. It it absolutely flabbergasted me. It was from a member of the congregation. I hadn't seen him in two weeks. I said, where have you been? And he said, "Uh, I got married. I said, you got married? (laughs) I said, why didn't you call me and tell me you were planning on getting married? His answer literally I am not joking, was because I knew you'd try to talk me out of it. And I didn't want that to happen. A few months later, they were separated. Today, they're divorced. It was a disaster from beginning to end. Your desires are idols, and they will make you desperately miserable in the end if you allow them to guide you. Now, is there any hope for those who have allowed their desires to wreck their lives, to make a mess of them? And the answer is yes. And the answer is not now try to be obedient in your own power. The answer is Christ. There were two particular meetings, three actually that I can think of, where Christ was brought into the orbit of women whose sexual desires had made their lives miserable. Remember there was first the Samaritan woman. Five husbands. Now, we might say, well, that was just, no, that wasn't the norm for Samaritans. She'd gone through five different husbands. And yet, it was to her that Christ came and opened up the gospel and revealed himself as the Messiah. And she went back to a place that had shunned her and said, come see a man who told me all the things of my life, everything that I've ever done, this man knew about. And he's given me forgiveness and he can give you forgiveness as well. And then, of course, there was that woman 
who was a sinner who came to his feet when he was sitting at the table of Simon the Pharisee. Oh, if he knew this man, this woman was a sinner, he wouldn't allow her to, to touch him. Oh, he knew she was a sinner. He knew she was a sinner better than anyone alive because he's God the Son. And yet, what did he say to her as she was kissing his feet and, and cleaning them with her hair? He pointed out to Simon the Pharisee that those who've been forgiven much love much. And she loved him because she had been forgiven. And so he said in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. You remember what the response of the Pharisees was at that point? It's who is this who even forgives sins? Because they knew that only God could forgive sins. And you know what? They're right. But Jesus is God. It doesn't matter what your sexual sins were. It doesn't matter what idols have captivated your heart. If you go to Christ in faith and love and you throw yourself at his feet like that woman did, if you trust in him, you will have that forgiveness, a forgiveness that only God can give. And that's because Jesus will have taken your sins upon his shoulders and paid for them in full and given you a new life, a new righteousness. So therefore, if you have not yet gone to him, go to him. Go to him as Mary went to him. Go to him as Martha went to him. Go to him as that Samaritan woman went to him. Go to him as Paul went to him, as Peter went to him. Go to him as I went to him, as a sinner steeped in corruption with no hope whatsoever. And know that if you do, you will have forgiveness free and full. Let's go before him. God, our Father, I do thank you, Lord, that there is hope for those who are sunk low in all forms of sin and idolatry. And it's to be found in your son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, in order to have that forgiveness, we need repentant hearts. That's something only you can give us. We need new hearts. We don't see that repentance, unfortunately, spelled out in the life of Solomon. We hope it happened, but we don't see it. But we do see it in the life of his father who cried out to you and asked that you would restore the joy of his salvation and wash him whiter than the snow. And you did, Lord. You cleansed him as if by hyssop. You gave him back, Lord, that assurance of his salvation that is so precious. I pray, Lord, that if there are people here who are struggling with sin, and inevitably there will be, that you would help them let go of that sin, the idols that are killing them, and flee to Christ, and know that they have forgiveness free and full. Oh, Lord, may 